plan at Snowpark is not driven by driving more skier visits. It's about creating a better experience. This new base area, it's going to be about food and beverage, retail, entertainment. Opera is certainly going to be a piece. We'll have an integrated transportation and mobility hub. We'll keep all of the parking that we have today. We'll add a little bit to it. We're going to bring the chairlifts that are Carpenter and Silver Lake. We'll pull those a little bit deeper into the base village. It's really thinking about how does this improve the ski experience. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, to America's powder capital today, Utah. First, a reminder to please pop over to stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. I love the pod. I am stoked to have you here, but the podcast is only a small part of the storm. In fact, the podcast is only a small part of the podcast. There is an article that accompanies this conversation on stormskiing.com that includes tons of additional context on our conversation, including maps, statistics, and more detailed information on the topics we roll through in our conversation. And that article is just one of at least 100 articles on the world of lift served skiing that you will receive every single year if you subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Deer Valley, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 124, Todd Bennett, President and Chief Operating Officer of Deer Valley, Utah. Ski writers, myself admittedly included, are guilty of glorifying the toughest mountains, of nodding quality to challenge. That is a large part of the reason why Rowdy, Big Sky, Snowbird, Jackson Hole, and Palisades Tahoe often wind up as top resorts in ski industry best of lists. Look, those are all phenomenal ski areas in so, so many ways. But here is where they landed on Ski Magazine's 2023 Reader Resort Rankings for the Western U.S. Big Sky, number 28. Snowbird, number 25. Jackson Hole, number 21. Palisades Tahoe, number 19. So, what was number one? Sun Valley, 
followed by Deer Valley at number two. Look, say what you want about Ski Magazine's Reader Resort rankings. They reflect what the majority of skiers value in a destination resort. And what most skiers value is great grooming, friendly service, fast lifts, and good food. In each of those categories, Deer Valley delivers. It is the premier property in Altera Mountain Company's portfolio, so singular that it is the only one of Altera's owned properties that the company has removed from the Icon Base Pass, and it is one of just two that is not unlimited on the full Icon Pass. Think about what that means in a company that also owns Winter Park, Steamboat, Mammoth, and Palisades Tahoe. Deer Valley is special. Why? Let's find out. My guest today is wrapping up his first season as President and Chief Operating Officer of Deer Valley Resort in Utah. Deer Valley sits on 2,026 acres of terrain across five peaks, served by more than 20 lifts, including 14 high-speed quads. The resort averages 300 inches of snowfall per season, but has exactly doubled that total in the record-setting 2022-23 to campaign. Prior to joining Deer Valley in 2022, he spent nearly two decades working for Disney, including three years as general manager of the California Adventure Park. He is also the founder of Open Road Ski Company, the publisher of The Man Behind the Maps, legendary ski artist James Nihus. Todd Bennett is my guest. Todd, welcome to the storm. I am so pumped up to talk Deer Valley today. How are you living in Utah as you wind down this outstanding ski season? Doing great, Stuart. Thanks for having me today. Um, like you said, it's been a record snowfall or fall year and uh, just thrilled to be here at Deer Valley, be living in Park City and having this great opportunity. So 600 inches for the season. You hit that total yesterday. Talk about that milestone, Todd, and what it means to Deer Valley Nation. It's It's been great. I mean, I think the uh, the conditions have been stellar. I think the, the guests have been in great spirits all season. Um, it has been more work than a typical year for our employees. But uh, I'm just a bright, sunny day here at Deer Valley and fun to celebrate with both the uh, employees and the guests uh, on breaking the record. I mean, Todd, you're no stranger to the mountains and to ski culture and ski life, but what has it been like to have this sort of experience firsthand, watch this snow stack up? I mean, how did this compare to your expectations of what a Utah winter in the Wasatch was going to be like? Uh, it completely exceeded my expectations. You know, my first trip to Utah was in 2001, and the very first day I enjoyed 25 inches of powder at Alta. Wow. Just a great, wow. great kind of introduction. And so I've had great experiences at Deer Valley, at Snowbird, at Solitude, Brighton, Sundance, Snow Basin. So this year was really something special. It's something we'll talk about probably for the rest of our lives. So when you say you've had great experience at all those resorts, were you able to pop around a little bit this season or was that all prior experience in traveling out to the Wasatch for vacations? Uh, Prior experience. Uh, This season has been predominantly at Deer Valley. (laughs) When I saw you in late January, Todd, you told me you'd had two days off since November. Have you had a little chance to relax since then, or has it just been full throttle the whole time? It's been pretty busy, but you know, when when I would have the occasional day off, we likely had a powder day, so I ended up just coming to the resort anyway. So uh, it's no complaints from my side. 
<laughs> Can't blame you for that one bit. Are you at all worried, Todd, that you've kind of saved the best for first? In other words, you've had such a milestone season that nothing after this could live up to it? Uh, there, no, there's many great days ahead. You know, I think that the great thing about Deer Valley, we have one of the best snowmaking systems uh, in North America. So we can put down a great product um, regardless of the snowfall, but certainly getting 600 inches this year has been um, been very lucky and uh, been very special. So as it happens, Todd, your first season ended up being one of the longer seasons at Deer Valley, which typically wraps up operations around the first or second weekend of April. You've extended your season till April 23rd. We're recording this on April 19th. We'll see if I get this out before you close, but any chance we see another extension, your neighbors of Park City just pushed to May 1st for the first time, or are you pretty set on that date? You know, Stuart, we opened Deer Valley in November. That was the first uh, or the earliest we've ever opened. Mm. Uh, we're closing the latest in April uh, that we've ever closed. So uh, I think we're going to stick to our current plan. Uh, what an incredible opportunity to have the longest season on record. And we look forward to celebrating closing day this Sunday. How much of that, as I mentioned, Todd, typically Deer Valley has closed earlier. How much of that has is owed to the record season? And how much of that is you? Because you, as I mentioned in the intro, this is your first year at Deer Valley. Did you spearhead this initiative or was this more of a team effort? You kind of listen into the guys who run the day to day on the mountains and saying, hey, I think we can push this. Uh, you know, Deer Valley has the three circle model. We, we, you know, we think about it through the lens of the guest. We think about it through the lens of the staff. We think about it through the lens of the community and, and all of our stakeholders. So this is really a well-rounded decision um, from the whole team. You know, we had an opportunity to provide a great guest experience and uh, we, we took that opportunity to push it forward. So it really has been a, a team effort and, and a lot of great discussions here locally. And how has business been? I saw a post from your northern neighbor, Snow Basin, yesterday that said, well, everyone was asking us for a longer season. We gave you a longer season and no one's here. So, so have you seen the traffic to justify this extension? We, yeah. You know, I'm looking out my window right now. It's bright. It's sunny. I see smiling people on the slopes. It's been a, uh, yeah, it's been great. You know, and I think, I think we're hitting the right mark this past weekend was fun. It was very slushy and great spring skiing. So um, yeah, we feel really comfortable and uh, with the, the payoff. I think yesterday was pretty cold. Maybe that's what you saw at uh, Snow Basin. So for those who are familiar with Deer Valley, what are you looking at out your window? Are you at the Snow Park Base Lodge? Yeah, Snow Park Base Lodge. I'm looking up at Wide West, our beginner terrain area, the Snowflake Lift and the Burns Express. So right, kind of right here out of the base at Snow Park. So the, the snow has been great. It's a great bragging point. And your neighbors in Utah have mostly experienced the same, same in Tahoe. You know, Todd, I took a, a Tahoe ski tour end of March. And the, the common theme among all of the resort leaders that I spoke to was, yes, we love all the snow. It's great for business. However, everyone's exhausted. Our employees are not only dealing with this at the mountain, but at their homes, they're shoveling their walks and their cars. Every single day, they're having to worry about all that snow weight on their roofs. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of stress. Are you finding the same in Utah among your employees? You know, no question. Our staff is the only reason we're able to offer such an incredible skiing experience this season. I mean, just an incredible group of people, their experience, their dedication blew me away. Paul Hedman and his lift crew, you know, Tristan Down and the parking lot team, Laura and the grooming team, Bear that does snowmaking, snow removal. They're just an exceptional group of people. And so, yeah, I think, you know, when you get when you're digging out lifts time and time again, uh, it, it is harder than a year with less snow. But um, they just really 
it's just it's just a can-do team, and uh, it's, when the skiing is this good, the work is going to be a little bit harder. Um, and you're right, you know, all of us, you, you you spend time before work or after work digging out your driveway, and then you come to to work and you're kind of digging out uh, again. But no, the, the, the team's been in great spirits, and uh, I, you know, I think everyone recognizes this is just a season that we'll talk about for 20, 20 years from now. So Utah is no stranger to snow. It consistently racks up some of the highest snowfalls on the continent. However, when your average is 300 inches, I would imagine you build your infrastructure to accommodate around 300 inches or maybe a little bit more than that. Again, when I was in Tahoe and I was in Utah in January, but that was before you you had racked up so many more hundreds of inches. But when I was in Tahoe in March, there were a lot of lifts where they had to dig canyons underneath them. They had the headbanger poles keeping folks out. What sort of operational challenges have you had around Deer Valley adjusting to all this extra snow? Yeah, you know, as, as, we, as we ski here at the end of the season, the, the lift towers seem like they've shrunk quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> the trail signs may be disappearing, but, um, you know, in all seriousness, it's really the snow removal around the facility and even under the lift lines. We've had to mark off a number of spots um, on the lift lines so that uh, folks can't ski under it. Uh, the base terminals in particular require a ton of extra work to get the snow out of there. Um, there's been transportation challenges around road closures and, and some delays kind of in the, the neighborhood here in Deer Valley. So, uh, you know, those are all kind of the pieces of maybe one more avalanche mitigation. Uh, we've done more avalanche mitigation than we normally do um, up on the daily shoots. So is it is your avalanche mitigation mostly constrained to the Empire Lift or are there other places on the resort you have to worry about? There's other spots um, up on Sultan for sure and, and a few other select spots around the resort. But I would say the majority is uh, taking place up on the Daily Shoots Empire Lift. It's interesting because a few years ago, all the resorts in the country went through this exercise of adapting to COVID and I think learned a lot of lessons long term that they'll apply. Curious as you went through this season with double your typical average snowfall at Deer Valley. Has your team learned some things that perhaps they'll carry into future seasons because they just had to adapt to an extra extraordinary set of circumstances? Yeah, that's fair. I, I think, what have we learned differently? You know, this is my first season, so that's probably a question I'd have to ask them specifically. Um, but I'd probably say that, you know, it's, it's a tenacious team and resiliency uh, of the people that you work with that you kind of understand that to a different level and probably another level of confidence to uh, take on the next challenge. So it's been an extraordinary season at Deer Valley, Todd, in your first full season in skiing in quite a while. And I want to rewind here a little bit just because, as I mentioned, you spent two decades at Disney, not really a traditional path into the ski industry, but here you are. So let's take a look at how you got there Starting with where you grew up. Did you grow up skiing? Did you come from a ski family? Set this up for us. Yeah, sure. So I grew up just outside of Lake Placid, New York, uh, you know, another Olympic town, similar to Park City, in a small village called Saranac Lake, New York. Uh, my first hill and my first ski pass, I think, was age four or so at Mount Pisgah. Uh, it's a single T-bar. It's got a run to the left and a run to the right. Um, skied there for quite a bit. And then uh, my good friend's dad, Roy Sloan White, was on the volunteer ski patrol at Whiteface Mountain. And so uh, my good friend Evan and I spent a lot of time going over on the weekends with his dad to uh, ski Whiteface. So yeah, I've been, I've been skiing for a long time. And um, boy, what a dream to, to be here at Deer Valley and get all this snow in the first year. So you grew up skiing in the east, as so many do. What drew you west? 
Uh, my first trip to the West was my freshman year of college. You know, we'd heard of these kind of places like uh, Winter Park and Copper Mountain and Vail and all these kind of great iconic places. And so the, the first trip I made out West was a 24 hour drive from the East Coast out to Georgetown, Colorado. And, you know, we just picked a new place to ski every day, which you can do right from that spot just on the other side of the Eisenhower Tunnel. So where did you hit on that first trip? Um, we, we did Winter Park, Copper, uh, Breckenridge, Keystone, Vail, uh, and A Basin. So what was your reaction as you just soaked all this in and, and just saw the scale and, and the snow quality and all these other things that go along with the West that we can't necessarily count on here in the East? Yeah, my, my thought was I'm probably going to move there. Um, <laughs> so after college, I, I did just that. You know, I did a small internship at Whiteface Mountain. Uh, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year between semesters. But yeah, in, in 1999, I moved out and started at Vail Mountain, worked at Vail Mountain for three seasons and worked for Colorado Outward Bound in the summers. So what did you do at Vail Mountain? I worked, um, I worked on the mountain. I worked with a, a group called Adventure Ridge. Um, and so that was kind of like a really guest service focused activity spot for kind of after skiing. And it was a great experience to go from my educational background, which was engineering, into a frontline leadership position. And it was, it was something I was pretty motivated by to get better at leadership and um, no better spot than the resort and service industry to start getting uh, better. So you spend three years in the mountains, and often that's the start of a story of someone who spends their life in the mountains. But you ended up leaving. Why did you leave, and where did you go? You know, I I, I really enjoyed my time in Colorado. I was, um, but I kind of had a thirst for for some more school, and just been kind of a curious, lifelong learner. So I hadn't really had any background in business, so I returned to grad school to get my MBA at. Uh, at uh, Emory in Atlanta. Not not great skiing in Atlanta, I hear. Did you miss the lifestyle? No, I think every uh, winter and spring I was back in the mountains in Colorado skiing. So I, I did all right uh, getting getting there. And, but it was a great, you know, it was a really great learning experience. Made some great friends and people that I still keep very well connected with. So now it was a wonderful experience in Atlanta. So you wind up at Disney. Were you at first in Florida or California or elsewhere? Kind of take us through that time. Yeah, sure. Um, so I started with Disney after business school um, and did a number of roles. I spent most of my time in California, um, time in Anaheim and Burbank. But I did do some work in Florida at Walt Disney World and a little bit also in Hong Kong and Paris. So you set up in mostly in Southern California. What did your ski calendar look like in those years, Todd? Did you hit the SoCal areas? Did you go up to Tahoe? Did you run out to Utah? Kind of take us through that. Sure. I did mostly, um, early on, I did mostly up to Mammoth, so made the drive. Um, but then started, you know, started taking a lot of flights out to Utah, um, particularly Utah. Some Colorado, but mostly Utah. Just great access to the mountains. You could kind of do a quick four day, long day, uh, long weekend, excuse me. Um, and yeah, I think, I think even there was days or excuse me, seasons where I was still getting 25, 30 days a season nice. living in SoCal skiing predominantly in Utah. <laughs> Is that a pretty, pretty common path for skiers out there to just do that, jump on that quick flight to Salt Lake? 
Yeah, you know, there's a lot of folks that did it. it I think it's about an hour and a half. Um, wow. I lived in Long Beach, so the Long Beach airport was right there, 15 minutes from the house. And mm-hmm. at the time, there was a nice competition between Delta and JetBlue. So uh, made it you know, pretty reasonable just to jump on a plane um, and uh, do a long weekend. So we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about your time at Disney. Obviously, an amazing company with a tremendous growth story over the past couple of decades. The time I want to focus on, Todd, is is what I mentioned in your introduction, which is the time as your general manager of California Adventure. Curious here how that experience running this big customer park prepared you to run Deer Valley. Sure. You know, Disney provided a really great background to weave a number of different disciplines together. You know, you think about the creative design and the development uh, of, of that resort, of operations, of the commercial or business side of running a resort, and then figuring out how that all integrates with the guest experience in the community. So um, I think the breadth of experience that I was able to get there uh, has been a great uh, background for running a resort here in the ski business. You know, as I've mentioned, I've got a passion for skiing and then the experience of running a large resort. It's really been a pretty seamless match. One of the similarities, Todd, that I see between Disney fans and ski fans is that they really, really love the product and they have very, very strong opinions about what it should be. So what was that like working at Disney and and you go into California Adventure and there's all these very distinct brands that are outgrowths of this intellectual property that Disney has curated over the years. How did you learn to balance visitors' expectations of this sort of idyllic experience that they expect when they walk through the gates and pay all that money with the reality of running this vast operation that is subject to the whims of not only weather and and, and other external factors, but I, I believe you were there during the time of COVID. So what is that like and what does it compare to running a ski resort? Sure. You know, running a resort's all about culture. Uh, it's the culture of service to employees, to the guests, to the community, to the owners. And so I think as a leader, if you're pretty explicit about that this culture matters and, and that's that's where everything starts and you engage with guests through that lens, things fall into place pretty nicely. You know, I think guests are when things are going great, guests will give you the compliments. When things are not going so well, uh, certainly they'll let me know. Um, but I think it's the the culture of wanting to deliver service to people and caring that um, is the difference between someone getting maybe pretty fired up uh, versus someone who's providing feedback and and you can kind of turn it around for them. It's, it's, it's all about where you fire from and the culture that you have in place. And were you at California Adventure when COVID went down in March 2020? Yes. What was that like? You know, I think similar to the entire resort business, it was really challenging. It was a lot of work with the teams to figure out what needed to get done, what we needed from the guests, what we needed from the state, um, and, and how you probably more than anything lead through with guests and employees a, a place of significant uncertainty. And I think a lot of a lot of that is is, is you really get in tune with your leadership style and again, back to culture. You know, if you create a space for someone to to be direct and honest with you um, about what they're going through, uh, that, that really pays off in spades when when it comes time for, to ask them to do something like reopen a theme park after being closed for hundreds of days. So I think most folks listening to this podcast, Todd, are probably familiar with the James News Man Behind the Maps book. I think most listeners probably didn't realize that that was a project put together by the general manager of California Adventure. So talk about 
Open Road, why you founded it, and what you did with it. Sure. Open Road came out of a, a ski trip with uh, my friend Ben Farrow and uh, Michael Waite and I think Sharad Kumar. The group of us were on a, a trip. And what we do uh, back when I lived in Southern California and not here in, in snowy Utah is we would block it seven or eight days and say, you know, determine that was the ski trip. But we wouldn't actually book anything until about 24 hours out. So oh, we'd wow. book our flights just before the trip started and we'd go to the snowiest place uh, that we could find. Um, so I think that particular year, I think we started actually in Salt Lake, skied a couple of days in the, the Cottonwoods and up in Snow Basin, and then started making our way towards Whistler uh, to meet up with some other friends. And halfway into the trip, we stopped at Tamarack Resort in Idaho. And I was looking at the trail map for Tamarack, which I'd never heard of until we were literally driving by it. <laughs> And uh, I noticed the, you know, the, the style of the, of the trail map. And I was like, gosh, you know, they all look the same. They have the same style. And I said to my friends, I said, it has to be the same guy. And, you know, you look at that little signature. And I, did, I didn't at that time know James or his story, but I was like, I've seen that signature before. So, you know, it kind of, for me, discovered Jim and the breadth of his work just by being a skier. And so I looked him up on the internet and reached out to him on AOL. Um, and we, we ended up um, kind of building a, a friendship and a relationship. And after about a year's time, he said, you yeah, know, let's, let's do this. Let's put this, let's put this book together of his life's work. So the book for anyone who has it, and I'd imagine a lot of listeners to this podcast do have it. Deceptively simple concept, right? You take a bunch of maps, you staple them together. You ship a book out, but set us straight here, Todd. What did it take to make the man behind the maps happen? Um, yes, uh, I, I had no experience in book publishing prior to this project, and it was uh, it was a really great experience. I learned so much about great story, about putting it together. But you know, first and foremost, the book was needed to honor honor Jim his work and his legacy. And so that's kind of uh, the forefront of Ben, uh, my business partner and my perspective. Like we have to start there. You know, he's one of the most detailed people I've ever met. So we wanted the book to be perfect and representative of the care and dedication that he puts into his maps. So, you know, we started looking at the work and he had over 800 images to work with. And we wanted to kind of pare that down to a reasonable number. So the first step was looking through all his images and all his views and all of his sketches uh, to understand what was going to be like the right mix for the book. So we whittled that down to, I think, probably in the neighborhood of 300 images, 400 images. Uh, we, we got a writer on board. We had to get the layout, the concept layout out. And, and then we ended up launching it on Kickstarter. Um, Kickstarter, I think our goal was like eight or $10,000. Mm-hmm. And we were very, very lucky. We ended up raising $600,000 and having pre-sold or kind of had backers for 5,500 copies. Uh, and that, and then having, you know, a nice bit of, of funding behind us, we kind of completely changed the orientation of how we were going to do it. We were going to just print locally in, in kind of a small shop. But then it kind of put us into the sphere of, all right, let's find the best printer in the world. And so we found a great group out of Italy, of Verona, Italy, called Graphicom, and they were have been a fantastic printing partner with us, you know, and, and so you're working with a printer and you're wiring them, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars overseas and you never met them. And you're kind of like hoping this whole thing works out, but you know, it sure did. We got, we got, um, we got all the books. Uh, they started coming inbound into the U S to a three PL. 
you know, one of the challenges of being more successful than we expected was a Kickstarter. Kickstarter doesn't actually capture an address. Mm-hmm. So we had 5,500 emails and we had to get everybody's shipping address, which, wow. uh, which we, we ended up building through a Shopify interface uh, to collect all that information. But it was, um, it was a very rewarding experience, but it was, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. If anyone is thinking about um, becoming an, an, an on-the-fly publisher, um, they should give me a call first. <laughs> so you get the books from Italy, they get to the distributor, then what happens? Um, you know, this was probably the most stressful part. So we, we actually, I think our Kickstarter closed in January. We had targeted June, not really knowing how long it would take to put together. Um, and we, it, but it actually landed in the U.S. in September, which I get looking in hindsight, like to do a book in nine months is, is a pretty incredible feat. But, you know, we, we, we wanted to get them out. We ended up working with a, a third party logistics company that was shipping out, would be shipping out all of the books. And it really overwhelmed them. Um, they just they couldn't they couldn't keep up with the demand and getting the the, the books out on time. So we ended up having to shift uh, third-party logistics companies just before Christmas. I think it was 2019. And um, yeah, that was certainly stressful as we were continuing to sell the book. And this whole time, I mean, Open Road Ski Company is two people. It's myself and Ben Farrell. So uh, we, we learned uh, uh, by the School of Hard Knocks customer service at the very detailed level and, and running an e-commerce business all at the same time. But uh, we pulled out Christmas. Um, We had a couple of folks that helped us reroute shipping containers out of the port of uh, Savannah to a new 3PL. Um, I think we landed books on November 29th still with a big Christmas push uh, to come. So it was uh, was a pretty remarkable life experience. I'm not, I'm glad I did it. I'm not sure I would want to uh, go through that again. I mean, what was that time in your life like? Because you're running a major theme park, you have a young family, you're trying to get these books out to thousands of people, and I would imagine you have more orders coming in all the time. What was it like to get through that, and how did you get through that? Uh, <laughs> it was very, very busy. Um, it was probably the least sleep I've had in a, <laughs> in my life. I, it was it was it was very really really busy, but I think just the the reward and, and the very lucky success that we had on it to go from a project where we literally thought we we're going to sell a couple hundred copies to be selling tens of thousands of copies um, was, was a lot of fuel that kept us going. And, you know, ev- even down to helping Jim get into the ski area hall of fame and having his family come up to myself and my business partner, Ben, and, and like just very genuinely thanking uh, us for bringing his story forward in such a positive light. So you're still working for Disney at the time, but this book, really brought you back into skiing, Todd. What kind of impact did creating the man behind the maps have in ultimately leading you back into the ski industry? Oh, I think it ended up, you know, unknowingly became a really critical part of it. You know, I've always enjoyed skiing, but through the book process, I started meeting more and more people. In fact, people that I now work with on the business side, on the media side, some of that kind of launching of the book led to some very lucky conversations and some some introductions that I don't think I would have necessarily been made otherwise. Um, so that led me to kind of the job in the application process. And then I think when it came down to the hiring team, when you're, you know, I think it was still maybe we we're in COVID or late COVID where you're doing a lot of Zoom interviews, trying to show or illustrate to people how important skiing is 
to me as a, as a person, it was pretty easy to use the proof point of the book. And, and that I think helped as well. So let's talk about Deer Valley now, Todd. So you end up there and Deer Valley is really a special place and Altera knows it. Altera, unlike Vail, doesn't treat all of the resorts the same when it comes to their Icon Pass as Vail does with the Epic Pass and, and puts them all in limited. The, amount, the company owns 15 ski resorts, Deer Valley being one of them. But Deer Valley is not unlimited on the Icon Pass. It is not on the Icon Base Pass at all. You can get it on the Icon Base Plus Pass. The season pass for Deer Valley is the most expensive in the country at $2,890. It's the price right now for 2023 to 24. When you were interviewing for this job, Todd, and those were just some superficial things that I pull out that, that make it obvious to everyone that Altera considers us differently. What did Altera tell you during the interview process about what makes Deer Valley such an exceptional place? You know, I, I had been fortunate enough to ski Deer Valley quite a number of times. It, it you know has a reputation that extends beyond the ski industry. And, and being a dedicated skier, I'd probably skied Deer Valley 30 or 40 times prior to the interview. And so I knew that they were dedicated to guest service. I knew that they were, they limited their daily skiers. I knew ski only. I knew the food and beverage and tasted the food and beverage firsthand and, and really enjoyed that. And I knew the grooming uh, and the attention to detail here um, that was set in motion by Polly and Edgar Stern, uh, carried on by Bob Wheaton and many, many others. I knew that reputation. And so I think I had a pretty good handle on from at least from a guest experience perspective on what Deer Valley is and what it means to the ski community and uh, what an honor to be someone to help continue that legacy. So you knew what the guests expected because you were one for so long. You knew how to run a big resort, but I'd imagine there's a lot of things that you've had to learn really quick. So what was that learning curve like, Todd? What translated well from your time at Disney and your time as a skier? And where have you had to really hit the books and come up to speed? Sure. Yeah. Learning curve has been has been phenomenal. It's been such a great experience. There's been some long days and, and certainly uh, long evenings, but you know it's all about the people. It's about the staff. It's about the guests. It's about the community members. You know, there've been a lot of really important people to meet. Um, you know, M Mary, who helps run the ski corral here down at Carpenter, season pass holders, Billy Mitchell, who have a deep passion for the resort and running into them on the slopes. You know, meeting um, Mayor Nan Worrell and, and kind of the folks that are important to business. Like that's where I've spent my time learning is really just understanding the people who work here, the the people that Deer Valley means so much to and the community that we have an impact on. And so that's where I've really spent the majority of my time. And I think I learned that from um, my time in other roles was that it, it's all about the people. So you came in and you inherited some really cool projects. And one of those was the Burns Express, the newest chairlift at Deer Valley. It's a short lift, but it was a pretty big project. Tell us about this new lift, what it replaced, and how Deer Valley reconfigured its beginning area to accommodate the new Burns Express. Sure. Um, so the Burns Express was part of a larger $6 million investment to improve the ski school and beginner experience um, here right outside my window at Snow Park. The, the reason that we did it is we wanted to give a better progression from Snow Park up to other parts of the mountain. And so the traditional uh, progression was to go from Snow Park, uh, beginner base area, wide west, up towards the top of the mountain and, and come down Ontario, uh, one of the ski runs here. Um, Ontario is one of the busier spots on the mountain. And so what Burns Express allowed us to do was to 
kind of have that progression go from snow park and then up towards the St. Regis hotel and uh, the Mountaineer lift. And it really helped us spread out the demand on the, on the mountain. So the, the, the lift was important. The regrading of the slope was important to kind of get that really perfect slope for beginners. Uh, we also made some changes to the magic carpets and it's, it's been a really great win. And, you know, as, as I think you've gotten to know me a little bit, Stuart, I, I am a ski nerd. And so when the <laughs> team said, Hey, it's time to fly the towers uh, or the Burns Express, I had a chance to um, go up there with uh, Paul Johnston and the, and the team from Highlander Construction and actually help install the, oh, the lift towers, which was just uh, such an awe of that team's work ethic, capability, passion for building it right. What an incredible experience. When I was out there in January, Todd, the Burns Express had not yet opened. It was in place and I got a good look at it spinning. Did it live up to your expectations? Did skiers immediately understand they could go up to Little Baldy with one lift ride instead of having to go all the way up Carpenter and come all the way down the Blue Runs to Navigator? Did it work out as expected? It has. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is our ski school. You know, our ski school is one of the, one of the, we take a lot of pride in our ski school. We think it's one of the best in the country. And so the ski school instructors were able to help facilitate that as well for their classes and students. So uh, we, we think it's hit, you know, kind of exactly as planned. And um, again, it's, it's to make, you know, we've got a great lift infrastructure here and just to spread out demand and, and kind of balance out the lift utilization as much as possible has been, uh, has been great. So it's helped not only for the beginners, but around the mountain at large. So that Burns Express by rotating that upward, you really opened up the beginner area, as you mentioned, and you lengthened the snowflake double, yep. I believe using components of the old Burns and added a whole bunch of progression carpets. So talk about those two elements of it and how much those have improved the beginner experience. Yeah, that's right. So Snowflake, which is kind of our our kind of small uh, chair here right out of the base, we moved Snowflake from, uh, we added two towers. So we, we brought it downhill a little bit more. And the rationale there was just, again, with a focus and an eye on the guest experience to get guests, um, especially beginners, where it's, you know, challenging to, to get uphill at all. We wanted to bring that chairlift closer to uh, what we call the pavers, right where ski school starts. So that, that had worked out really well. We had three, I believe, three magic carpets prior. Uh, we have four now, so we were able to provide an even broader um, experience for those on Wide West. Um, and yeah, th those, those changes have worked out really well, too. It's been, uh, it's been super fun, and I've, I've got a couple of young ones uh, who had skied a few days prior to moving to Utah, but to just see their progression. I mean, we literally, as a family, used the progression that was built from the wide west area up the burns express and now the kids are solid uh, intermediate skiers so the burns express really only has two trails that you could lap little stick and that's is there an opportunity todd to develop more trails the skiers could lap off that lift or is the terrain there just not conducive either side of the lift to expansion on trails it, the Burns is really more of a transport lift. It's a lift to get folks out of the base area up towards the mountaineer area. So you're right. You, it's not a lift necessarily that you can lap, uh, but a couple of runs, but it does take you up uh, into a different pod of the mountain and get you exposed to a whole different um, side of the mountain in a, in a much faster way. You could, you can get to mountaineer without the Burns Express, but it just, it's a lot easier, especially for the beginners. So it was a short lift, an expensive lift, but a pretty fancy lift. Tell us about some of the new features on the Burns Express. 
Sure. Birds Express had one of the first automatic restraint bars of any lift in North America. Uh, very well received by our guests. And as I mentioned, a parent of a couple of young kids, I, I love it. So the, the, uh, the automatic restraint is, is super helpful. And, and it, yeah, I think we kind of hit on it, but that just that, that ski school experience and the beginner progression, it's just, it's just really hit on it. And I think it might be one of the shorter detachable quads in North America. When you say auto restraint bars, Todd, do they go down automatically or is that just going up automatically? Uh, both, both. So the, the, the bars uh, at the base will come down, they will lock into position and then uh, release when they get to the top. Has there been any issues with that? You know, I ask because the safety bar culture is quite different here in the East than it is in the West. And, and I find fellow riders are often surprised in Utah when I want to bring the bar down. So have you had any issues with people either not being ready for the bar or not wanting it down? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I've watched and observed there quite a bit. Um, it is different, you know, and we do explain it uh, by the, the lift operator at the bottom will kind of coach folks into what's going to happen next. So there's a little bit of a learning curve, but I think overall it's been very well received. You made an interesting comment to me, Todd, when we were standing at the top of the Burns Express and watching it spin that folks were in the habit of raising the safety bar too early and that this would teach them where it was supposed to be raised. Talk a little bit more about that and how that's worked out. Sure. I mean, you know, I think that the best place to raise the safety bar is right when you're coming into the station. I had an opportunity to ride with some of the folks from Doppelmeyer and, you know, they, they coached me just the same, which is that's the best place to do. And, and so the auto restraint bar does just that. It comes up when you get into the station. So I think that's, uh, you know, setting the right culture and uh, the right safety standards for the resort. So locals will always have opinions and, uh, you know, they know the mountain really well. And a lot of folks I've spoken to regulars at Deer Valley would have preferred an upgrade to some of the existing lifts other than Burns. Why was Burns the right choice now? And I appreciate, Todd, that this decision was made before you started at Deer Valley. But why was that a priority for Deer Valley? Sure. Um, it's, it comes down to ski school and the beginner experience. You know, it's something that we knew kind of as a as a what our guests are asking for and what they want, what they come to visit, what, we, what we're known for. So being that ski school beginner experience is such a big part of what we do and so many youth programs and families and first time skiers come to visit us, we felt that was the right investment to make. There, there are certainly other opportunities and we're always looking for places that we can expand our infrastructure and guest experience. I think the team shared with me, we did about $200 million invested over the last 20 years and we're gonna continue to, to do that, to reinvest in the experience. I would imagine, Todd, that Burns Express was also an important first step for this base area redevelopment. So in the press release announcing your hiring as head of Deer Valley, Altera said that you would, quote, immediately focus on the Snow Park base area redevelopment, which is the reimagining of 15 acres of surface parking lots at Snow Park into a modern and convenient premier base area. And quote, for those listening, Snow Park is the main portal into Deer Valley. There's several base areas, but that's the one that you park at and are most likely to start with the two lifts coming out of the base. Tell us about the vision here, Todd. What is the Snow Park base area redevelopment? Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, Snow Park is the, the entry point for, the, for many guests for the Deer Valley experience. There are other portals that you can come through, but this is the primary one. So this new base area is all focused on improving that arrival and departure experience. Um, your, your first and your last impression. So it's going to be about food and beverage, new retail, new entertainment, new skier service facilities. Opera is certainly going to be a piece and expanded ski beach. 
uh, is something that we're going to have. The ski beach is going to kind of come down. If you remember where the parking lots are, we're going to bring that ski beach deeper into the parking lot. We'll have uh, an integrated transportation and mobility hub, uh, which will be great. It'll be expanded. It'll be set up for bus charging so we can run electric buses or the city can run electric, electric buses. We'll have underground parking facilities. So we'll, we'll keep all of the parking that we have today. We'll add a little bit to it, um, but we'll do that with underground parking. Um, we're going to bring the chair lifts that are Carpenter and Silver Lake. Those are the two main lifts that come out of the base that go up the mountain. We'll pull those a little bit deeper into the base village to make it a, a little bit more easy to get to the base of each of those. Um, and I think a big part is focusing on the, the year-round activation, uh, the amenities that can be run year-round. And, and that's something that we're pretty focused on because we think we have a really strong summer program here at Deer Valley. We think we can continue to grow it. We have great, as you know, great airport access through Salt Lake. So it's really thinking about through programmatically all the pieces that I mentioned, but also with a broader strategic view to say, all right, how does this improve the ski experience? How does it help people linger longer at the end of the day? How does it create a great integrated summer experience? How about housing, condos, hotels, worker housing? Is that part of this mixed use development? Uh, it is. We have currently proposed and, and titled for, without getting too many details, it's roughly 150 keys between hotel and condos. And then we also have nearby a housing proposal that is uh, tied to this as well of roughly 280 beds. When you say housing, is that employee housing? Is that just general guest housing? Sorry, employee housing. Oh, that's terrific. How many employees do you house on site now, Todd? Um, on site, uh, I guess loosely, I, I wouldn't describe it as on site, but um, nearby we have about 450 beds. And that is a focus for Altera long term. How much of an issue is that for Deer Valley and in Park City? You know, I think housing continues to get more challenging in mountain communities. And so it, it's we, we, we can always use more housing. You know, we, we did very well with our staffing plans this year. We were fully staffed, but I think providing an opportunity for affordable, close-in housing near the resort is always a, a win for, for us. So we'll continue to focus on it. So let's talk about the kind of lifts that could serve this expansion. Right now you have Silver Lake Express and Carpenter Express. Both of those are high-speed quads. Silver Lake Express goes up to the peak and over down to Silver Lake Lodge and Carpenter Express goes to the summit and then folks take the Homestake Express back up to that lift. Do you imagine simply lengthening those lifts or are we talking about new lifts? And if so, what do you have in mind? Yeah, you know, I think for Carpenter, Carpenter and Silver Lake Express, both of those lines will come deeper into uh, the base area. So we'll extend those, as you mentioned. Carpenter will probably take a good look at maybe shifting from a four to a six pack. A little bit more work needs to be done on that, but we'll take a look at that. And then Silver Lake Express, we're talking about instead of having that run as a chairlift, maybe run that as a gondola that can provide a better transportation option from the village here in Snow Park up to Silver Lake. So where are you at in this process with all this, Todd? Are you in planning, permitting? Do you have any sort of timeline for when we could start to see work on this? Yeah, sure. We're, we are in the kind of process of getting permits together. We are in a process with the city and uh what we, we do need the, the permits and uh, the conditional use permits is the technical name for our transportation plan, which we've shared with the city. Uh, and we're hoping to break ground next spring on infrastructure. But that's all predicated on, um, you know, kind of getting our permits and our plans approved. I think the concern here as folks hear this may be, oh, no, 
Deer Valley is supposed to be this premium experience. They're trying to bring more people in. Is that the goal or, or are you trying to just build a better Deer Valley without necessarily having to bring in more skiers? Sure. Now, the plan at Snowpark is not driven by driving more skier visits. It's about creating a better experience. It's about creating more food and beverage options at the end of skiing. You've, you've been here. We have we have a small operate at the end of the day uh, here at Deer Valley, but you know we, we can certainly do better. And that's something that our guests are looking for. So, you know, I think it's more about creating the the amenities around the resort. And then also talking about that summer integration, how do we build so that we can run a better summer operation that does kind of support what we have today. In mean, best case scenario, Todd, when do you think we could start to see some stuff here? Oh, I, Stuart, I think it's probably too easy to tell. We're going to take it one step at a time with uh, getting our permits. And then, um, you know, once we get that rolling, we, we'd be in a better position to kind of announce when we think uh, you'll start to see some real action. So 14 high-speed quads, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the more impressive lift fleets in the country. And Deer Valley does upgrade its lifts fairly regularly by historic standards. Altera has only owned the resort for about five or six years now. So I'd imagine they're still gauging what to do with it. Looking at those quads, those high-speed quads, the oldest is Northside, built in 1993, followed by Carpenter and Wasatch in 1996. Again, we already covered Carpenter. But what do you think are the next lifts in line for upgrades, Todd? And what would you imagine going in those locations? Sure. We're in the process of building out a multi-year plan that takes into account that those lifts that you mentioned and some of the facility upgrades beyond Snow Park Village, places like Silver Lake Lodge and Empire Lodge and Cushing's Cabin. So we're in that process right now of, of evaluating that and kind of putting it against the criteria of age of lifts, but also where is the the biggest need. So we don't have a plan that we're yet ready to share because we're kind of putting the fishing touches on it, but uh, perhaps next time we get together, we can share a bit more. Do you think there's a place on Deer Valley other than Carpenter, which you mentioned, that would be appropriate for a six-pack lift? You know, you have so many lifts on every peak that, that quads, to me, seem like the right lift for Deer Valley. But what's your thinking around that and potential places for a six-pack? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I think the lift lines here are pretty, pretty low, and I'm not sure that we we're ready for a lot of uh, additional six packs or, or any six packs. So I think time will tell, but you know, we're not necessarily looking at significant volume growth. That's not the, the game plan here. So it's interesting. You have all those high speed quads. You do still have five fixed grip triples. Two of those judge and Viking are, are really transportation lifts. So I imagine those are fine. They're very, very short. Uh, Red cloud crown point and Mayflower, however, are a little bit longer lines do you imagine upgrades to any of those, or do you think the fixed strip triples work for those locations? I think they work pretty well. Um, like you mentioned, Viking and Judge are quite short. They're just kind of pulling you out of that basin um, uh, by Quincy, kind of back up into the Silver Lake Lodge area. Um, I think Crown Point works pretty well. I think Red Cloud works really well as is. And in fact, I've had I've definitely had guests that have asked me to make sure that we don't change Red Cloud. Okay. Uh, you know, Red Cloud is a little bit redundant to Quincy, kind of. Um, and it's, a, it's it's not a short line, but it's not a particularly long line either. So I, I think the fixed grips that we have right now are probably in pretty good positions for the traffic um, and the distance that is needed on each of those lifts. So one of the cool things about skiing in Utah is you can ski back and forth between Alta and Snowbird. And you can ski back and forth between Brighton and Solitude, even though all four of those resorts have different owners. And Solitude actually is owned by Altera, just like Deer Valley. 
You cannot, however, ski back and forth between Deer Valley and Park City, even if you have an Epic Pass and a Deer Valley ticket and they meet at the top of Empire. Why can't you do that, Todd? Yeah, sure. So there, there's not currently a pass product or a boundary gate that allows skiers to move from Deer Valley um, and our neighbor. I've asked the team a little bit about this. The connections have been looked at all over the Wasatch back. A lot of the ski areas here over the years, but I think for our brand uh, and, and our experience, limited daily skiers is really important. And so since our lift tickets are already limited, uh, I don't see adding additional skiers between the mountains. You may, however, add a ski connection on the other side as a new resort called Mayflower is built east-southeast of Deer Valley. Tell us about Mayflower, Todd, and the discussions that you've had with them about joint operations with Deer Valley. Sure. Good segue, Stuart. Yeah, very good segue. Um, (laughs) So we're continuing in our talks with Extel about future operations of the Mayflower area. Um, if we were to be involved with that, uh, that project, we would be the operator. And the idea would be that, um, that space that is over on the Mayflower side would just be all one part of Deer Valley. And so it would, to the guest, it would look like an expansion of terrain. We're totally committed to providing a great mountain experience. And so any agreement that would be done between Extel, Mayflower and Deer Valley would have to support Deer Valley's character, their legacy and, and kind of how we do business. Part of that character is no snowboarding allowed. And Deer Valley is one of three ski areas along with Alta and Mad River Glen that still bans snowboarding. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, that Altera has not lifted that ban. But why is snowboarding banned at Deer Valley? And why does it still make sense to keep it a ski-only mountain? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a ski-only experience. It's something that our guests seek us out for. And I think it's something that sets us apart. So, you know, we... We're really comfortable with uh, the experience that we provide and and committed to a ski-only experience. So another thing that Altera has done to preserve the experience, at least that was my interpretation of this, is for the 2022 to 23 ski season, Altera removed Deer Valley from the Icon Base Pass. So skiers used to get five days at Deer Valley. Now they have to buy up to the Icon Base Plus Pass to get those. Going through the first full season without Deer Valley on the Icon Base Pass what was that like? What, what impact did that move have, Todd? You know, it, it's all about balancing um, capacity in particular for what Deer Valley has been known for and, and kind of the shorter lift lines that our guests have come to expect. And so it helps us deliver on our brand promise by helping to limit the number of daily skiers. Another way you, you probably inadvertently limit the number of daily skiers is, is that lift ticket price, $269 this past season. You know, you told me that that was still a surprisingly large part of the resort's business. What does your walk-up lift ticket business look like? It's it's still a pretty important, uh, well, maybe not walk-up, but pay ticket. So a non-pass ticket is still a pretty important part of our business. Uh, we do have walk-ups, but we, we a significant number of our pay tickets are purchased in advance, you know, 5, 10, 15 days in advance. Um, it's an important part of the product mix. It's one of the few lift products that can be bought in season, all season. So you don't necessarily have to commit, um, at the, at the beginning or in the fall uh, prior to, um, but it is subject to advanced sellout. So there are a number of days a year that we just, uh, we don't have any additional tickets to sell. 
So I mentioned that season pass price, $2,890, the most expensive in America. Your season pass holders can also add a full icon pass on for just an extra $299, which gives them access to pretty much the entire Wasatch outside of Park City Mountain right next door. How popular is that option with your season pass holders? Um, yeah, definitely. We see folks add that on. Um, it's it's a great opportunity to ski another five resorts within about an hour of Deer Valley. And it's quite popular for those who want to ski at the other resorts here in the Wasatch. Do you get any pushback on that price from your pass holders? Because right next door, Park City is twice the size. The season pass is one third as much. Or is that just part of the brand and folks who buy it like it and they're glad it's high because that preserves the experience? You know, I, I think... We stay true to what makes Deer Valley special and a different experience than other ski resorts. It's exceptional guest service. It's great ski product. It's uh, the great grooming on the mountain, limited daily skiers, great food and beverage. So I think um, I think we are in a spot that works for our business and, and certainly other ski areas take a different approach. And, and that's great. And I think that serves a lot of uh, customers as well. Definitely a unique place. Well, Todd, with that, I will let you go. I really appreciate your time today. Congratulations on the record-setting season to you and the team at Deer Valley. I hope you have a nice vacation planned. You have certainly earned it. Thanks, Stuart. Great to see you. That's Todd Bennett, President and Chief Operating Officer of Deer Valley, Utah. What an awesome time to drop into Deer Valley the day after they hit the 600 inch season snowfall total mark for the first time in the resort's 42 year history. Just awesome. Thank you so much for taking us inside, Todd. What a freaking season. And thank you all for listening. Lots more pods ahead, including with the leaders of the Indy Pass, Palisades Tahoe, Heavenly, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. And guess what? I have been busy booking a whole bunch more podcasts, and I am announcing them here for the first time. Mount Baldy, California, Keystone, Copper Mountain, Atitash, and this is a cool one. The general manager of Valle Nevado, Chile, is scheduled to join me on the podcast in July. To get those episodes as soon as they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the Storm Skiing newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.